Welcome to the Truth Be Known podcast, bringing you the objective truth boldly, candidly, and without apology. Welcome to this week's episode. Well, welcome back to another episode of the Truth Be Known podcast. I'm Nathaniel Jolly. And I am Eki Tepsipornchai. Well, guys, this is going to be a really good episode uh, because we have a really fantastic guest today, Mr. Gabe Hughes. Gabe, thanks for joining us today. Hey, pleasure to be with you. I didn't know if you wanted me to talk there or not, if you wanted me to chime in and go, and I'm Gabe Hughes. <laughs> now, Mr. Prob- Radio Voice himself. <laughs> exactly. You probably recognize Gabe's voice if you're familiar with the what videos. But Gabe, uh, before we get started, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, where you're on, on pastoring at and a little bit about your own podcast uh, and videos for everyone. Yeah, so I'm at First Baptist Church in Lindale, Texas. I've been here for a little over a year, about a year and a half, uh, working with Tom Buck. Uh, I kind of oversee the discipleship and education here at the church. So my responsibility is to make sure everybody's teaching soundly (laughs) in all of our Sunday school classes and even in our children's Sunday school groups and things like that. So uh, I, I write some curriculum. A lot of the Sunday school adult classes are following curriculum that uh, that I've put out. Uh, I teach one of the Sunday school classes. Usually, if there is a class that meets during the week or something like that that needs a teacher, I'm probably the first one that they end up calling. And uh, the sermons are either going to be preached by Tom or myself. He probably you know, we'll go through eight or nine sermons, and then I'll jump in with one or two. And so uh, that that's kind of the 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 way the preaching and teaching is structured here. Everything comes underneath the elders, and we uh, we oversee and make sure that the teaching is sound and according to the Word of God. And it's been a pleasure to be part of this church for the last year and a half. Now, I pastored a church in Kansas before coming here, and I was there for 10 years. And it was there at uh, First Southern Baptist Church in Junction City that I started an online ministry called When We Understand the Text. And at first, uh, abbreviated what, W-W-U-T-T, it was responding to questions that were coming from members of our own congregation. But as we put those videos online, they started getting grabbed by other people and shared around the world. And now it's had over 10 million views. Uh, It's spun off into a podcast that has had uh, almost 3 million downloads is what we're approaching. And, uh, and just faithfulness to the word of God and making sure the scriptures are being taught in context. And so it's been wonderful to see how God has blessed that ministry. And I'm grateful in whatever capacity that he's called me to this to, to teach God's word. And I can't imagine doing anything else. That's awesome. So for you guys who don't know Gabe um, and, and aren't following his material, we'll put links in the show notes uh, to the what videos and to the podcast and that sort of thing. Um, well, we have a very light subject to talk about today, guys, right? Um, biblical manhood. You know, what What does it mean? Uh, and everyone will agree with everything we say on this podcast, without a doubt. Um, but uh, what do we mean when we say biblical manhood? Do we see in our culture today um, more of a pull for men to be men, or do we see more of a pull for something else? W- what are your thoughts? Yeah, let me jump in with that. So, I mean, I think of what Paul said at the end of First Corinthians in chapter 16, verses 13 and 14, he basically says it's time to act like men, right? And when he says that, he assumes that his audience knows what that means. And so, I think when you go through the scriptures, you see a lot of examples of what biblical manhood 
is. But what happens today is that we're seeing a lot of the culture uh, really compromise on that, trying to make them equal and in the process, uh, turning men into more uh, effeminate in their characteristics and and trying to make women more masculine. But we see very clear examples where that doesn't uh, work out at all. Uh, Gabe, what is your thoughts? Yeah, well, a lot of these instructions that you see in Scripture, you see are directly addressing men. Uh, so even with that uh, uh, instruction that you said there in 1 Corinthians 16, he's telling the church in Corinth, it's time to grow up and act like men. And with regards to Timothy being a strong man of God, even uses that term man of God in giving that instruction to Timothy. So you have Paul writing to Timothy first. He's giving he's being given these instructions on how to lead the church and then the church is to follow those instructions as well. But you see the instruction coming first to men. The Bible, by and large, is written primarily to men. Even when you want to pull something out by uh, like Proverbs 31, we often think of the Proverbs 31 woman that a, a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. But even that description there of the Proverbs 31 woman is written to a man. (laughs) It's here's what to look for in a godly wife. That's exactly the way that the address begins. And so it, it needs to start with essentially the head of the household who is discipling his wife, and raising up his children in the instruction and discipline of the Lord, Ephesians chapter 6. So we see that God has positioned men as those who are supposed to be the ones who are taking charge, who are leading the charge of growing in godliness and Christ-likeness. And when men are stepping up and doing that, uh, families benefit, the entire church benefits, women and children are protected, and men are growing in the Lord. So very simply, a a definition of what does it mean, what does biblical manhood mean? It means to be a man of God according to what the Bible says. And every instruction that we are given regarding following Christ or loving one another is going to begin first with the men and the rest of the church following after those examples. Yeah, that's a good... Go go ahead, Eki. Yeah, no, it is a good point. And uh, one of the common uh, comebacks that comes from the other side is that, so are you saying that those instructions are only for men? Um, Because they will argue that all the instructions are for all of the church and not just merely men, even though in context, it was men that were being addressed. Well, yeah, there's certainly, uh, it's certainly for the entire church. Just take, for example, 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. There we have the instructions on what Uh, a qualified elder or pastor is supposed to look like. But does that mean that that section of scripture only applies to pastors or elders? No, it's for the entire church. Now, Paul has said to Timothy there in chapter three, it's in verse 15, where he kind of gives the the, uh, purpose of the letter. Uh, He says, I've written these things to you so that you may know how one ought uh, ought to act in the household of God. And so Timothy is taking those instructions from Paul. He's teaching them to the other men, because that's exactly what Paul says, pass these on to other faithful men. And then those men are teaching the rest of the church these things. So it is absolutely for the entire church, but you look at who it's addressed to first. Who's the author? Who's he writing to? And then how does the Holy Spirit communicate those things to us today? So even with regards to the instructions concerning elders, the entire church needs to pay attention to that because they know they're raising up men of God to lead the teaching in the church that meet those standards and those qualifications that Paul gave Timothy. Yeah, in 2 Timothy 2, too, that was a great example where Paul tells Timothy to whatever he's heard from Paul to teach other men so that they may be able to teach other men as well. And in that, you have four generations very explicitly of men being mentioned there. That's not to say that women 
don't do any teaching. Women can teach other uh, other women. They certainly are to help raise up their children. We see that, for instance, uh, with Timothy. He was exposed to the scriptures and the wisdom in the scriptures by his mother and grandmother. Uh, Paul makes a reference to that. But yeah. the, 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 the brunt of that responsibility is consistently given to men over and over. Yeah, and I think so. We're talking about all this. One of the first things that we ought to say is that to be a, a real man, um, and when I say real man, we mean a biblical man, right? You've got to be a man that is ruled by the word of God, right, uh, in, in all of this. And it, let me just start us off. I want to read a portion of Psalm 119 because I think it gives such a great picture of, of what I've just said. Uh, 9 through 16, how can a young man keep his way pure by guarding it according to your word? With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips, I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your way. I will delight in your statutes and will not forget your word. Um, and, And I think that's a big problem uh, in our society, even amongst the professing Christian men, is we see a lot of men who just simply aren't ruled by the word, they're ruled by the world. And right. if you're ruled by the world, you, you're you not going to look like a biblical man. Yeah, just this morning, so the day that we're recording this, uh, this morning I led our women's group that meets on Tuesday morning. And, uh, and one of the things that I said to that group is that if you're trying to please the world, You've got one set of expectations that you're trying to meet today. Tomorrow, that list of expectations is going to change. So if you're, if you're trying to go by the world's righteousness, if you're doing what the world says is good, you've got a certain standard one day and then shifting emotions and opinions and all that other kind of thing are going to change it tomorrow. This is why Paul warns the church in Ephesians chapter four, not to be tossed to and fro by every shifting wind of doctrine. But we remain steadfast and sure according to what God's word says, and we as the church help to keep one another accountable to that. So the contrast to what the world looks like is Jesus Christ and following after Christ. And it says in Hebrews that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So there's not shifting opinions. There's not a a different set of circumstances or guidelines that you got to follow tomorrow uh, that were different than what you had yesterday. We know that what God has said in his word is sure. It is sufficient for all things. It has been sufficient for all time. And as Jesus said in Mark 13, 31, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. So a man of God is going to be steadfast and sure according to what God's word says, and that's his standard for living. Now, Gabe, what, what, wait, wait, wait a minute. Let me back up a little bit here because you're a man teaching a women's <laughs> Bible study. How dare you? I know I this was the, the only 20, man in there. <laughs> this is the 21st century. Don't, uh, don't women need other women to teach them all of their theology and doctrine? It is a requirement for every single Christian to be under the teaching of men. There is not a requirement for every single Christian to be under the teaching of women. But every Christian must be under the teaching of godly men. That's the standard that we see in the church, and every Christian must be in submission to that. And if that's not happening, it's whatever's happening is wrong. Um, 
but it, it, it is a I think that is part of the feminization of men. Right. Our culture has gotten to such a point where there's a quite a large group who would profess Christianity who would probably disagree with you on that. Right. Who, who would argue that probably well, it, I mean, they'd be wrong, but they'd argue <laughs> with you. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, but they would say, well, we need a woman's perspective. Um, on X, Y, Z, and we can only get that from from women. But uh, God didn't give any qualifications for women elders. You know why? Because they don't exist. God right. didn't call women to be elders. And the primary function of elders in the church is to feed God's sheep, right? Uh, to teach, to uh, preach the word, to help people understand what the scripture is and to shepherd people. That's not a woman's function. And so uh, I, I think it, it, when we're talking about biblical manhood, we need men who are willing to um, step up and say, no, I can't abdicate uh, my biblical role in the church in women's ministries just because we want to make the society happy and always have a woman there. I don't think that it's wrong but uh, to, to do that. I mean, we, we're a small church plant, and uh, we have a women's ministry, and right now my wife is walking through the women through things, um, but, but ultimately I lead that ministry. I decide what materials we're doing. I may step in uh, often and teach that myself because I'm the one called to do that. Um, it's not something that elders should just hand off to women in the church, but that's what our society teaches, right? Right. Yeah. If you were to break up the church into all the men go over here and receive this teaching, all the women go over here and receive this teaching, you would have a dysfunctional church. So the, the eldership, the overseer is, has been appointed for a man to fill that position, as it says in Titus 2, 11 through 3, 7. That doesn't mean that women can't teach, as you said, for you have women teaching other women um, about certain things that the word of God may not be reviled, as it says in Titus 2, 3 through 5. But what do you have right before that? Titus 2, beginning in verse 1, as for you, Paul speaking to Titus, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. Verse 2, older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, and in perseverance. And then Paul's going to give instructions about older women and younger women and younger men. But who first is setting the standard for the church? The apostle gives the instruction to the overseer who's giving the instruction to older men. And those older men are setting the first examples for uh, living a biblical godly life for the rest of the church. You know, and this is possible, too, because truth is objective. It's not subjective. You know, there's a, been a big push in our culture for standpoint epistemology, yeah. this idea that uh, truth is different for me than it is for you. And it's a little bit ironic that we're hearing some people argue from both sides of their mouth, where on one hand, they say, well, we need to have a woman's perspective. And then on the other hand, they try to argue that everything's the same. Well, if everything's the same, then you don't need to have a different perspective, right? Um, so we understand that truth is objective. It comes out the same way. There is still value. I would argue there's value in having my wife disciple other women within the church. It's not because they're teaching a different truth, but they're helping them understand the truth in the context of their role uh, within a marriage as a mother, with as a woman of God within the, the church. Those are all valid ways to disciple someone else. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, you know, the idea that Adam also once thought that it was a good idea to take a woman's perspective on something that was against God's word. And <laughs> what he should have done was slap that stinking fruit out of her hand instead of eat with her. Um, and, and that's what happens when you abdicate, when men abdicate God-given roles, right? Um, yeah. 
And even in that situation, according to way Genesis three reads, Adam was right there with her. Yeah. So yeah. he's not protecting his wife from the deceptions of the enemy. And as a result, she ends up listening to the creature rather than obeying the word of the creator. Uh, when you go through the order of the way that instruction is given in Genesis chapter two, God told Adam, you may eat of every tree of the fruit of the garden, except for this tree, the tree of the knowledge of the good uh, of good and evil for the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, if we believe the order of events that are given there in Genesis, and I believe that we should, that instruction was given before Eve was created. So God told Adam that you, as the head of the household, as the one who has been put in charge of all that God has created, it's going to be your responsibility to now pass this instruction on to your wife. He makes a helper that is suitable for him, takes a rib from his side. Uh, Adam immediately falls in love with this woman, love at first sight. This is at last bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And a man will leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two will become one flesh. You have this, this beautiful song from Adam uh, at the very beginning when he sees his wife, but then he does not fulfill the duty of a husband in leading his wife in the instructions that God had given. And as a result, him standing right there and not uh, and not stepping up and protecting this woman from lies, yeah. she ends up listening to the snake and he listens to his wife. And that, incidentally, that comes back into Paul's explanation in 1 Timothy 2 for why the woman can't be uh, the overseer in the church. It says, because Adam was formed first and then Eve. And then Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yeah. So because Adam was made first and because the woman was deceived first, that's the reason why she can't be an overseer in the church. It's almost like the Apostle Paul knew the argument would come up, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, and so he takes, he takes the, the, the role all the way back out of his own context, almost like so that no one could say, well, in Paul's day, he takes the argument all the way back to creation and makes the yeah. argument from there, right? Well, furthermore, I mean, you also, you also understand there and recognize that as Paul says, for Adam was formed first, that's almost like he's looking at all the men in there going, guys, step up. This is your job. Yeah. It is your job to know God's word and to teach it. The women are protected. Your children are protected when men know God's word and they faithfully and boldly and courageously preach what it is that God has said. You know, and you use the word protected, which I like because what we have to keep in mind also is that we're dealing with spiritual warfare. And Paul makes these analogies all the time with physical warfare. When you think about the armor of God, for instance, we are engaged in spiritual battle. And just as everyone all over the world and every single culture knows, you don't send your women to the front line to do battle. Uh, we also see the spiritual truths that when it comes to battle, men have to be on the front line protecting those truths. And just speaking anecdotally, and we know we don't get our truths from anecdotes, but even just speaking anecdotally across the history of the church, we've seen what happens when churches give in on this very important truth that men are to lead the church. When women start to lead the church, I can guarantee you it's only a matter of time before they start to compromise on other very key and critical doctrines of the church. And now you've got a false gospel that is not even recognized. I think of the church up in Canada I heard about a couple of years ago where the pastor was a woman. And not only was she a woman, but she was an atheist pastor. Mm -hmm. How does that work? And, yeah. and they refused to vote her out when it came to the question whether she should step down or be voted out. 
the congregation actually voted to keep her in, which goes to show the state of the church and what happens when you start to think in terms of allowing a woman woman to lead. There was also that story of the church where the man changed to a woman. I can't remember where that was. Yes, uh, you're right. That was that was back in 2020, I think it was. And uh, and again, the church congregation voted to keep him in. Yeah. Um, uh, this man who <laughs> is he himself is doing wickedly, but now he proclaims himself to be a woman. And so essentially the church is approving a woman, even though he's really not. But that in their mind, that's what they're thinking. So, yeah, you see this uh, you see this constant rebellion against uh, the word of God whenever people start ignoring that God has established the sexes. He created them male and female, Genesis one twenty seven. And he has designated that men are for these roles and women are for these roles. And when we start to deny that, we fall into all kinds of false doctrines. Yeah, it's almost like um, the Bible teaches patriarchy, and that's actually a really good thing. Um, <laughs> There's so, biblical patriarchy. That's right. Um, yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, we're talking about all these things and men's responses to things. And really, if you go back to some of the language, what we're talking about is the fact that men are um, commanded and meant to be courageous, right? Uh, you mentioned the First Corinthians passage where it says, be watchful, uh, be strong, uh, act like men. Um, in another place in Corinthians, you know, the same uh, Paul talks about growing up, right, and becoming a man. Um, if you go to Joshua, we have the command to be strong and courageous. In Deuteronomy, strong and courageous. I mean, all throughout the scriptures, we have this um, th this specific command for men. And somehow, uh, in, in the, the feminization of men, it, we've created a culture where um, you know, men are somehow supposed to act like women, and that's being lifted up and applauded. And but we don't see that anywhere in scripture. So, what are some areas that you guys think, uh, if we were to ask the question, that men aren't allowed to talk about in our current culture, but that we absolutely should be talking about if we are to be God's men? Eki, you're a little quicker on the draw than I am on that one. Why don't you go ahead and then I'll think about it. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is submission. Um, yeah, right? So when we go through, go through Ephesians 5, it's very clear that the woman is to subject to the man. And what a lot of people in the culture or what a lot of people, uh, Christians within the church are tempted to point to is the verse that comes before it that says we're to subject ourselves to one another. So they'll say, see, we're supposed to uh, subject ourselves to one another. That means that man subjects to woman just as woman subjects to man. But the problem is when you look at the examples that continue through chapter six, when you start talking about children and parents as well as masters and slaves, those roles of subjection don't work both ways. So you can't argue that uh, that subjection is meant to be both ways. And anyone who's been in the working world and has had to serve under a manager or under a leader, you know that you need to have a clear line of authority. It has to be very clear who is the authority and who has the final word. If you're in a situation where two people claim to be equal authorities, guess what? You're opening yourself up to chaos. So we know that even in a practical sense, but in a biblical sense, uh, we see that as something that is taboo for men. And often what people will say was that, well, because you're a man, you're seeking to protect power. And that's why you're saying that, because you just want to lord over your authority over women. Well, no one wants to be accused of lording their authority over women. So a lot of men, I think, are intimidated to say that, and they 
back off or they give into the culture and say, you know, maybe we need to soften that stance or, or make that sound uh, different or, or more appealing. But when we start to appeal more and more to the world, I mean, we see what's going on around us. And then you also see, let me just point this out too. A lot of the people that take on these positions, just look at their fruit, just look at the fruit of their behavior, the way they conduct themselves, the bitterness, the anger that you see, the uh, temptation to slander and, and libel that, that I often see even directed um, at myself. But you pull all of this together, and that's, I think, one of the first areas where men are being pressured into maybe taking a step back or not stepping up for is the fact that women are to submit to their husbands. Now, one more thing. In counseling, and if I have a couple and there's a problem with, uh, with headship, um, what I will say to the man is that it's not your role to force the woman to submit to you. It is your role to love your wife as Christ loved the church. It is the woman's role to submit to you as she does to the Lord. So we have to also realize that though men are given those roles of leadership and um, and to be the spiritual leaders, the physical leaders, the providers and all that, we also have to realize that men are not called to be tyrants. And there's a difference. So people will often equate patriarchy with being a tyrant. And I don't think you can support that biblically, either in the Old Testament or the New. I think something else that men, so, so if I remember right, Nathaniel, the question was, what should men be teaching women? Was that or, what you said? Yeah. Or just what are some of the ways that uh, some of the things that men should be teaching that they're not because of the pressure? Uh, of okay. Society? Yeah. So one of those would be strength. Uh, to yeah. be uh, just as you had quoted before from Joshua 1 8, be strong and very courageous. Uh, that's not what the world wants the church to be teaching men is to be strong. No, you need to be weak. And somehow meekness is associated with weakness and humility not, is associated yeah. with weakness. So if you're going to be a humble person, then you need to be a weak person. But a man of God must absolutely be strong in the in the face of uh, opposition, in the face of the way that the world is attempting to attack the church. The men who are supposed to be the shepherds, you go back to, you know, first Peter uh, five, one through five, where Peter is instructing the elders of the church to shepherd the flock of God that is among you. That means you're going to be defending the flock against the wolves and you need strong men of God to do that. When you start saying that, when you start talking about men acting in strength, well, how does the world respond? That's toxic masculinity. Yeah. So you have yeah. this you know, term that they try to attach to strength so that they'll shame men into being weak instead of being strong men of God. But we need to give bold, clear answers. You know, the last guy, uh, the last time that you uh, guys and I talked together was at ShepCon and we had just gotten done hearing Vody Bakum preach. Yeah. And one of the things that Vody Bakum said, I don't think it was in that sermon. It was later on in the week that he said this, uh, but he said that the, uh, that the, the world hates biblical clear answers because mm -hmm. they're inherently masculine. When you give strong, bold, clear answers, that's being a strong man of God. And the world hates that. They don't want you to give the bold, clear biblical answer. They want you to be nuanced, uh, and they want you to be winsome so much to the degree that you're so nice and effeminate with your response that it can be ignored. That's essentially it. Uh, don't give those those bold, straight, clear, truthful answers that uh, that, you know, you can't deny because it's just bold, clear truth. Instead, you need to water it down and make it something else that, well, that might be true for you, but that's not so much for me. So strength yeah. is one of those things that. We should be telling men to do that the world is saying is is not the the right teaching.
And, and again, strong, bold answers assumes objective truth. It assumes that truth is clear from the scriptures. And I understand that there are some smaller areas where there is debate, There's the, things are left up to the people's conscience. But in areas where scripture is true and clear, we must be true and clear in our communication. And when people start to compromise or say, let's water it down, let's be a little bit more, more nuanced, don't you think that that starts to open the door to a lot of other views now gaining acceptance? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, we're, we're uh, you know, there and there are going to be some occasions where nuance is necessary. I'm not yeah. saying you shouldn't have right. nuance at all right. or that we shouldn't be winsome. Uh, after all, you know, Eki, you had quoted from Second Timothy 2 a little bit ago, and it's there where Paul says that the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, yeah. but yeah. kind to everybody able to teach, patiently enduring evil and correcting opponents with gentleness. So we're not telling men to be jerks, and that's what it means to have strength. But having strength also means being temperate. You know, going back to uh, the the instruction that I had mentioned a little bit ago from Titus 2.2, mm -hmm. older men are to be temperate, not given over to wild ideas, but our thinking is fixed on what God's word says. Uh, they're to be dignified, which means that we're uh, we're not acting like fools in the in the midst of the world. Yeah. When we see, as Peter said in First Peter chapter four, they're going to uh, they're going to make fun of you because you won't join them yeah. in their acts of debauchery. Right. But we can't respond the way that the world acts. Jesus, when he was reviled, didn't reviled in return, but he entrusted himself to him who judges justly, and that's part of being a strong man of God is trusting in the Lord, even when things are not going the way that, that we expect them to go. Uh, being sound in faith, in love, and in perseverance. Even that instruction for men there in Titus 2.2 is that we are to be loving toward one another and persevere in these things. Uh, and these are qualities in men that the world just absolutely hates. You might hear from the world that a man needs to be more loving, but it's the world's definition of love, not what God says love is supposed to be. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, you know, we're supposed to be, uh, and I like the way Paul Washer says it. it. He's the first one I heard say it this way, but he talks about um, Christian men being king's men, right? Mm -hmm. uh, we're, we're to be the king's men. And, and if, you, if you just take that imagery of a knight, um, you know, we have this kind of imagery throughout scripture, right? Someone who is honorable, someone who's tempered, someone who defends uh, the truths of the king um, and, and doesn't waver when pushback comes from from the people right and that's really what we're supposed to be and i, I think you hit the nail on the head uh when you talked about mentioned how people confuse meekness and and nice right those aren't the same thing and we can go to jesus as the perfect example um mm. it, it, jesus right was in every way um perfect in all of the attributes uh, and the, the fruit of the spirit, right? You, you look at the fruit of the spirit and there's nothing that Christ lacked. And yet there were times where he called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs there. I mean, I mean, he literally took the time to make a whip and whipped people out of the temple. Right. And, and, and that is a picture of, of, of strength and not a picture of, um, Christ going into the area where he's all of a sudden no longer full of meekness, right? So you want meek and mild Jesus, just remember Jesus, meek and mild, went into the temple and he whipped people out of it. 
And and I will tell you that whip was probably it. It hurt, right? I mean, that's what whips do. Um, and and so yes, we aren't meant to be jerks, but we do have to stand firm on truth. Now, I'm not saying we should make whips and go whip people. That's not something we should be doing. Um, but we take strong um, stances on biblical truth. And speaking of strong stances and encourage one of the areas that I think we aren't allowed to talk about as men today, general in society is homosexuality. Um, we're to be quote unquote loving. And the, the world says loving means accepting, right? But that's not the biblical view. So homosexuality is one of those. Now, I, I mean, should we be very firm and open on that stance? How um, we see a lot of guys that shrink back from that. And either we see guys who are, you know, there's a whole movement in the church which is uh, this idea of, quote unquote, um, gay Christianity, which mm-hmm. is stupid and straight from the pit of hell. There's no such thing that exists. So you have that kind of stuff creeping into the church. And then you have guys who will just never touch the subject. Right. They don't want to create an uproar. They, they don't want to seem combative contention. Let's talk about those two positions are either one of those things that um, that a biblical man should be should be doing. No, absolutely not. And and when we do compromise, we end up getting what we're seeing today, where now you're talking about um, allowing young children who are not even old enough to understand sexual realities to start approving of them going through hormone treatment or to experiment uh, with their, their body parts and, and other people. And that is literally happening in a lot of the public school systems. So that's what happens when we step back and, and we take a passive role to this. And a lot of this goes back to, once again, do you believe that the Bible is true or not? And mm-hmm. when we talk about Genesis, uh, Gabe, you had mentioned that, hey, you believe Genesis is history. It is a literal work of history that is meant to be understood as nonfiction. And I fully agree. And that goes all the way back to Genesis 1. And when we look at Genesis 1, 2, and 3, it it makes it very clear that man was created with two genders, male and female. And at the end of chapter two, we see that male and female are to come together in one flesh. And that is exactly how the creation mandate would be fulfilled to go and populate, to, to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth. And, and so we understand that the, that the act of procreation was a gift from God to man and was to only be fulfilled through the marriage relationship and only between male and female. And what we have today is exactly a Romans 1 situation, Romans 1, 18 through 32, where basically professing to be uh, wise, we have become fools and we start to uh, elevate man's desires and their needs and their feelings above what God's truths are. And what we're seeing around us is God handing people over uh, to those sins. And then at the end of it, it's not only that they commit these sins, but they heartily approve, even though they know their sins, they heartily approve everyone else who does them. So if men are not to stand up strong with regards to human sexuality and really the God-ordained uh, function uh, of marriage and man and woman, then at what point do we step up? And and even if you are of the view that the world is going to continue to get worse and worse and worse, and so there's there's only so much that we can do, um, I would still challenge you that we still need to stand up for truth and call out sin where we see it. And that is where the role of the men come in. And when you see these movements of people that argue against it, a lot of times women are on the forefront because it's often the women who are most tempted to want to create a bigger circle of inclusion, to include everyone into the church. Um, but you can't do that without compromising on scripture. Yeah, this is, this is an area where there is simply no nuance. So 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10 are plainly clear. 
Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor the effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then going on to verse 11, Paul addressing this church in Corinth saying, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. So this is not, again, not an area where there's nuance. Uh, As you had said, Nathaniel, there's no such thing as gay Christianity. If you are truly in Christ, you don't continue in these sins. You don't identify yourself by these sins. You are washed in the Lord Jesus Christ, or you're not in him at all. Uh, the, the, the ways that these things have been watered down and these terms have been redefined and so on and so forth has allowed this enemy to creep into the church and led people to think, well, as, as long as I'm not acting out on it, then it's okay, right? I, I can have these proclivities. I can have these desires, and they're natural, even though they're ignoring that Romans 1 says they're unnatural. Uh, Jude 7 says that they're unnatural. But we also have in Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, put to death what is earthly in you. And what is earthly in you is sexual immorality, evil desire, passion, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So all of those things are attacking heart issues. It says sexual immorality, but then goes on to say evil desire and passion and covetousness, those things that are within your heart. You're not even playing those things out. Verse six goes on to say, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. So even the desire for it is sin. And even the desire for it, God's wrath will be poured out on. You cannot desire what God does not desire for you. The desire for it itself is sin. And we're not saying that. Again, that's another one of those things that we're being told. No, it's more nuanced than that. There's more going on there. But how much do you actually hear preachers standing up in the pulpit right now and saying, repent of this. I urge you because the wrath of God is coming against these things. That's exactly what scripture says. So we need to have those bold declarations against sin, but also saying that the gospel has the power to forgive you of these sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That penalty was paid for by Christ on the cross for us. Amen. And and let me add to that for those who are listening, because some might be hearing this and saying, well, I, I hate the way you guys come out and, and hate the homosexual community and encourage all kinds of violence and whatnot. Uh, let me quash that for a moment. And by the way, Justin Bolting, he you got challenged me to say quash. that word. I got quash. Right, we got quash in there. <laughs> so let, let's let's quash these these straw men arguments that are being made because what we're not advocating for is any kind of physical violence uh, to come upon those who identify in these communities or anyone who is living in sin in this kind of way. What we are saying is that we must be able to stand on Scripture and say what God says. People call us homophobic. They'll say that we're violent. They'll say that words are violence. No, words are not violence. Violence is violence. Physical mm-hmm. violence is violence. And then the best thing that we can do is to love people in order to, so, so that we can share the truth and help them to come to a knowledge of Christ. So we want to love them 
And so the best way to love them is to help them know what is the way to Christ. And by doing that, we cannot stand for these lies. We've got to be able to call them out. But at the same time, we cannot capitulate to the culture, which tries to convince everyone else that by sharing these truths, we're essentially abdicating or we're advocating violence against this community. We are doing no such thing. So anyone that's trying to do violence against this community, I have no problem standing up for them, saying that they should not uh, have violence uh, committed against them. If they have committed a crime against society, have it brought up uh, before the courts um, in in our government. Um, But for us, we are simply just standing upon what is the truth, and we're letting them know that judgment is coming. And this is true for all sinners. Judgment is coming if you do not repent and confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is one of those areas where it's good to make the point that the loving thing to do is to warn the gay community, right? Because you, I mean, you, you, you read the verse, there's no nuance to that. It's crystal clear. The loving thing to do is not to ignore someone's sinfulness that will lead them straight to hell. That is not the loving thing to do. And yet our society is basically telling us that that's what we must do. Um, And and I think we're talking about biblical manhood. One of the things that you, you do as a man is you stand up for what you know is the best thing. Uh, for someone, even if you catch flack for it. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm reminded 2 Timothy 3, 12, right? It says, indeed, all who want to live a God, uh, in a godly way in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And the real man says, um, yet I may, th- though I may be persecuted, this is the best for these people. The best thing is that they know that their sin, uh, that they're dead in their trespasses and sin, and that the sin of homosexuality Um, has to be repented of, and they need the gospel, and they need to repent and come to Christ. That's the loving thing to do, even though they may hate me, even though they may attack my Twitter account or my Facebook or, you know, um, pick it outside my church. I'm going to do it because it's a loving thing to do. It's also and, and many and many have been delivered out of that movement. We should we should yeah. add that yes. that this is not even this is not just kind of some kind of theological ivory tower thinking where we're speaking on hypothetical situations. People have been delivered out of those movements yeah. and have had healthy families, have gotten married, and have lived God honoring lives for the rest of their lives after repenting. Yeah, and I would just add lastly to neglect to stand up in these areas is actually to do harm. It's to abdicate the very role men have. Our our role is to protect and guard in the church and to refuse to stand up for these. It is actually to harm these people, right? Right. Now, think about the, the building block for a community is the family. You don't have a community without family. Right. Nathaniel, a moment ago, you said gay community. I know what you mean by that, but there there cannot actually be a gay community. That's true. Because true. two gay men cannot procreate and therefore create that community. Yeah. So you think about the, the basic building block of, of a community being a family. That's the way that God has established it. Man being the head of the household. In Ephesians chapter five, uh, beginning in verse 25, you have that instruction given to husbands, Love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. So the man in the household, if we're talking about a flourishing, thriving society, beginning with the family, you have a man who is loving his wife like Christ loves the church and it's sacrificial love going on into verse 26 so that he might sanctify her 
having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Now, that's what Christ has done for the church, but that's also something a husband is doing for his wife. He is helping to sanctify her through the word of God so that, and then Christ doing this for the church, verse 27, he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Men, do you desire for your wives to be holy and blameless? So your desire, your responsibility as a man of God is to sanctify your wife according to the word of God, building her up. But then it doesn't just, it doesn't just end with your wife. There's the instruction that goes on later in Ephesians chapter 6. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, yep. but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. And notice there, it doesn't say parents, it says fathers. So the onus mm-hmm. is first on the man of the household, the head of his household, That's right. to bring his children yeah. up yeah. in discipline and in the instruction of the Lord. And we see this, once again, being the basic building block of a community. So let those things echo throughout the community. That we have strong men of God who love their wives as Christ loves the church and are raising their children up in the instruction and discipline of the Lord. And you will see a community transformed mm-hmm. for Christ Jesus when God's word is followed. And then let me, let me clarify what you're not saying. What you're not saying is that mothers have no part in that. What you are saying is that the responsibility starts first and foremost with the man. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, in Proverbs, uh, where Solomon is saying, Son, listen to my instruction. It's good for your dad and and your mother delights in it as well. Yeah. So <laughs> there are instructions that comes from mom to uh, her children that the children should also listen to. Yeah. I mentioned earlier about Proverbs 31, where you have the um, uh, the proverb the instructions regarding the Proverbs 31 woman, which is actually instructions that's given to a man about the kind of wife that he needs to be looking for. Well, it's King Lemuel. This is, this is Proverbs 31.1. The words of King Lemuel, the oracle unto which his mother disciplined him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this is an instruction that his mother gave to King mm-hmm. Lemuel to basically say, son, this is how you find a good godly wife. So may the instructions of our good godly women and mothers be followed uh, among our godly men as well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, guys, let's jump on to another one here quickly. Um, I, I've got a couple I really want to hit on. We'll see if we get to it before we run out of time. Um, uh, another area that's a pretty big area uh, is that men aren't allowed to talk about is modesty. You, you definitely <laughs> cannot, if you live in the 21st century in America, we are not allowed to tell women that they should not be dressing like the harlots of the devil. But I to say that anyway. Um, it, <laughs> <laughs> There's lots of reasons for this, right? Um, but let me ask this question. Uh, does the Bible address the way we ought to dress? Or are we just making that up because we want to be uh, patriarchal control freaks over women's bodies? Eki, was it you recently? I thought you were the one that made a tweet about how if, uh, if a woman is godly, then it's going to be reflected in the, in the clothes that she wears. She'll desire to dress in such a way that is pleasing and honoring to the Lord. Was that you or am I? I would agree with that. I don't think I was the one that tweeted. Okay, that that wasn't from you. Okay, yeah. Yeah, So, so a woman who fears the Lord again, you know, going to Proverbs thirty-one was a Paul uh, Washer quote. Oh, it's a Paul Washer quote. Is that where it comes from? I think so. 
somebody might have quoted washer then is what i saw but um uh, anyway yeah so you notice that in proverbs 31 it even talks about how she clothes herself strength and dignity are her clothing yeah. dignity is her clothing not sassiness and not <laughs> that is My not a fruit of the sealed. spirit yeah <laughs> sassiness is not a fruit of the spirit so and then in the same way when paul talks about modest dress in uh, uh, regarding women in first timothy 2 mm-hmm. he uses the same word there yeah. he says that she's to dress in a dignified way so proverbs 31 strength and dignity are her clothing First Timothy two, dignity is is her clothing. Is she dressing in such a way that's calling attention to herself or even to her body, or is she dressing in such a way where uh, her face essentially is is the thing that is showing the the glory and the honor of God? So the the focus is uh, is on the Lord, godliness and good works, not upon uh, herself and and her own appearance. And again, you know, the responsibility to teach this, um, because I hear a lot of comments about, you know, how how men shouldn't even be talking about this. Well, again, the elder's responsibility is to teach scripture, and this is in scripture. And I think what would be good uh, to help men understand why we ought to, if you have daughters, you most certainly should be teaching your daughters how to dress well before God. Oh, yeah. Um, You know, men in the church, we ought to be teaching this. And the primary reason is we want, first of all, women to develop um, a, a heart for honoring God in what they do. Yes. It should be such a desire that, you know what, the question of what men want or need or teaching isn't even the primary factor. It's, am I honoring God in what I'm doing? And if the answer is no, then I want to change that. I mean, that's the heart we're trying to cultivate, right? And at the same time, what we're not saying is that men don't have a responsibility to, to control their you know, their thought life. That's not what we're saying. But in that passage, you know what you don't have? You don't have any reference to the thought life of men in that passage, right? Um, right. Because the focus ought to be, is, is the woman's heart longing to please God in what she's doing? And, it, and, and if you're, you know, and, and if a woman, a guy too, but if a woman is trying to get as close to the line as she can, then that's a good indication that her heart's not in the right place. You know, how much of my body can I show off before it causes someone to sin? Or what's even more common today is, well, I should basically be able to walk around in my undergarments and uh, it's your fault if you lust. I mean, that's basically the argument today, right? Um, Well, controlling thoughts, I mean, that goes back to the strength of a man. A strong man is going to control his thoughts and even make his thoughts obedient unto the Lord and not go after those things. But that doesn't mean he puts himself into situations where he's going to be tempted by the things that he sees. Uh, A strong man is also going to resist that and go the other way. Flee from the devil and he will flee from you, as it says in the scriptures. And even yeah. that, right, men get men get slack from, right? Because I know yeah. Eki and I have told people, um, look, th- there are just some places that godly men shouldn't be going. Right. Uh, b- because unless you're blind, it, there's no chance that you can tell me you're not going to struggle with lust. Uh, and then, of course, the pushback would be, well, well, that wouldn't be the case if you weren't objectifying women. N- no, a-, a godly man should not care. If that's the rebuttal, the reality is if we're in an area where women are walking around in things only their husband should be seeing, we just shouldn't be there. Right. Yeah. The the Old Testament law has prohibitions about exposing the nakedness of another. So we know that that's there. That's there are certain parts of our body that are sacred that only 
the person in a one flesh relationship with us should be able to see. And when we think about just the general truth about prostitutes and harlots, they all dress a similar way, no matter where you go, anywhere in the world, at any time in human history, which is to say that they reveal more of those body parts that they should be covering up. Why do they reveal it? They reveal it because they're trying to drive up the lust of men that are looking for those kinds of activities. So how is it honoring to God when a woman tries to dress in a way that gets closer and closer to the way a harlot or a prostitute would dress, and then suddenly say that, no, this is honoring to God, the problem is with men that happen to allow their minds to go there when they see all those things exposed. Well, it, it just doesn't rhyme with all of human history and human behavior, the way it has behaved in every single culture at every single age in history. But it also just goes against the idea that our bodies are sacred and should only belong to our partner in a one flesh relationship. You know, uh, Nathaniel, you had made the point that if a woman is dressing in such a way that kind of pushes the line, she's trying to see how close she can get to the line without crossing it then that's a good indication that her heart is really for the flesh, even if it's her own yeah. flesh, rather than having a heart for God. The same goes true for men. Yeah. Uh, men in their lusts and their appetites of their flesh, if they're trying to see how close they can get to the line, mm-hmm. how much can I flirt with this woman until it's considered yeah. unfaithful? Or how much can I, uh, yeah. can I desire to see a little more of a woman's skin before it's considered to be uh, adultery in my heart? If that's what a man is playing with, if, if he's trying to find the line and tiptoe up to it, then his focus yeah. is on the sin. It's not on Christ. Yeah. And maybe his heart is not really for Christ if, if that's, uh, if, if that's what's on his mind, we need to, again, going back to James chapter four, draw near to God and he will draw near to you, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And I think this is the position that a lot of men find themselves in. I, I mean, even today, I, I've been posting a couple things about it's springtime. So I always talk about uh, modesty around springtime. And, you know, I always get a, just a tad pushback. Um, is it but, actually getting warm enough in Alaska, though, for uh, <laughs> to be dressed I, in anything other than it, winter clothing? It, you know, we don't have a whole lot of that here. There are some exceptions, but it's not as big of an issue here because it's just <laughs> stinking cold all the time. Uh, but it does happen. But, it, you know, you talked about lot, guys pushing the line. And I would just say this. If you're a guy who's adamantly defending the right of women to wear bikinis, it's because you're a pervert. You need to stop yeah. it. You need to repent and you need to back up a little little bit. Um, because the only reason you would defend that is because you want to indulge the flesh. And we're all guys here. So we're not fooled by this, right? You can make whatever arguments you want to make. Um, but I see a big push by a lot of quote unquote Christian guys who have gotten trapped in this thing, who are arguing for women to be able to wear as little as they'd like. Yeah. That, I don't know how you can um, I, I don't even know how I can grant any grace to maybe they just misunderstand. It's just no, because you want to see half naked women walking around. Stop it. You know, how would you like men uh, to treat your daughter that way? Right. Um, and, and this comes back to primarily um, men with our eyes. If you want to be biblical men, then we want our eyes and our minds and our thoughts to be honorable to God. And you know better. You can't put yourself in that situation and, and know that you're going to have those thoughts that are good and honorable to God. And so I, I think there are, I do think there are some men that defend it because they've capitulated to culture. 
So they've mm-hmm. given into the pressures of society, of culture. They've um, basically stopped standing up for what is uh, what is true biblically, what uh, we know is true uh, for men and women, and how we're supposed to defend that. And so I would say that um, a lot of men do it uh, out of a perverse nature. I think other men do it just because they've they, they've stopped standing up for what is true, and they're, they've given over to the pressures of society, which is equally detrimental, though. Right? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, Galatians 5, 22 and 23 is where we have the fruit of the spirit. And oftentimes, whenever we give that list, the emphasis is always on the beginning. It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. So you need to be a nice person. You need to be a loving person. Uh, What often gets neglected is that last one on that list, self-control. That's that is the fruit of the spirit. That applies to men and women. Both women need to be self-controlled in what they wear. In fact, when you go to the instructions that Paul has for uh, for dressing modestly in First Timothy mm-hmm. chapter two, he begins and ends that with women need to be self-controlled. So covering up is self-control. Mm-hmm. Men not undressing her with your eyes or with mm-hmm. your mind. That's self-control. And that's that's fruit of the spirit. If we have uh, given our body over to Christ for his service. So Romans chapter six The members of our body are no longer for unrighteousness, but we've become slaves of righteousness. Then even in your thinking, your mind, which is part of your body, you have submitted that to Christ and desiring that that what you think about, you know that God knows there's nothing that you can hide from God. Jesus says in Revelation 2 and 3, that uh, I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each person according to their works. There's nothing that you can think that God does not know. So take every thought captive Make it obedient to Christ. Philippians 2, 5, have the mind of Christ. And we who desire Christ will uh, will do that. Yep. And furthermore, as men of God, we need to be leading in that way. And part of that means where you see a person who's just starting to veer off, they're starting to go astray. Find that loving way that a good man of God can come against or, or come alongside that young man who uh, is not keeping his way pure, going back to the uh, proverb or, or the the psalm that you read, Nathaniel, come alongside that guy and head it off at the pass. Say, brother, I've seen some of the things that you're looking at. I've seen some of the way that you've talked about these women, and I'm telling you, watch your step. The warning that God gave to Cain in Genesis uh, chapter four. Yes, yeah, sin's desire is for yeah. you, and it's crouching at your door. Head it off at the pass, so we yeah. keep one another on the path of righteousness. And I think I, I, I should elaborate a little bit on, on because I make some hard statements and those are intentional. But what I'm not saying in line with with your advice there, which is good and biblical, is that we should go around and just call everyone perverts and things like that. Uh, I think we need, need to recognize um, that part of the flesh and just call it for what it is. Uh, but I think there's also when we're dealing with people directly, um, we, we do, you know, our hearts as men who are leading in the church is ultimately to see people um, who are submitting to God and are growing in sanctification and in their holiness. And so, you know, we can both call things like they are uh, and walk along, walk alongside, uh, you know, younger men and, and just even peers, like you've said, um, in a gentle way that doesn't 
um, ignore the reality of the sin, right? And so we use wisdom in in those things. And so we're not. Uh, I'm not advocating to be a hateful jerk, you know. Um, but I think that uh, so much of our society puts pressure on men to just soften everything because we, we don't want to. We don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, you know. If your feelings get hurt, then it must not be of God, right? Because it's not meek and mild and gentle. Um, and, and that's just not necessarily true. In some sense, I, I don't really care about your feelings. I care about your holiness. Um, it, it, you know, I, I, I do, but um, I don't care about your feelings to the extent that I'm willing to let you walk in a path that's going to destroy your life and your family's life. I care far more about your walk with God, your family's walk with God, and we can work through the feelings. Um, we submit our feelings to scripture. We don't submit scripture to our feelings. We've got to remember Amen. that. Yep. yep. Well, guys, the last one, and we'll wrap up because I know we've gone a little long. Um, something that uh, I think this is in the category of men are just afraid to talk about, especially all of us white men, because there are three of us here that are clearly just very white. Um, sorry, Eki, I know you're Asian, but you get roped into the white men on this one. White adjacent. <laughs> white, white, white adjacent. So on you know, my screen, you're right in the middle. So you're white that's, middle. That's, that's yeah. right. That's right. Yeah. I, have to, I have to have two white guys on each side of me. Uh, <laughs> this is an oppressive podcast. Um, but anyway, so it, it's the issue of racism, right? Uh, and I think if you don't have uh, dark skin, our society basically says you have no right, uh, even within the church, to talk about racism. And we hear this from the likes of Jamar Tisby and, and some other guys out there. Um, mm-hmm. it, is it the, the role of the biblical man to address racism? Or is that something we should be saying, well, maybe only Vody Bauckham can talk about that because he's black as you can get, right? Or, uh, it, it, you know, name several guys. It's going to say Virgil, but Virgil is more like milk chocolate. Uh, <laughs> Daryl's more like dark chocolate. That's so, right. I can't say any of these things as a white guy, but anyway, um, what well, you are getting canceled, man. You are, you're not going to last after this podcast. I am canceled. I'm so, dropping out of this podcast right now, <laughs> but really for the godly man, how should we be talking about the issue of racism? Because we have actually now created a culture of racism, but it's not what you think. It's right. coming largely from the CRT group now. How do we deal with that? What should a godly man be willing to say? Gabe. <laughs> well, this, this uh, let me kind of jump back to the beginning of when CRT started getting popular and embraced by the church, which was really not that long ago. It was just a few years ago. Even when I was trying to figure out the terminology and I'm trying to figure out what what exactly are you accusing people of? Because like, for example, you go back to MLK 50, uh, which was a collaboration between the ERLC and the Gospel Coalition, uh, the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. And this was really MLK 50 was when I really started listening to yeah. some of the sermons by these wokists and not realizing some of the uh, the pastors that I had admired for so long were as woke as they were. I still remember the sermon that uh, Matt Chandler preached, and he made that comment um, that you have got to say something. And I'm like, say what? I don't even know what you're talking about. Yeah. Like, they're not defining their terms. There, there was just a lot of yeah. things that were assumed there. And, I, I, and I'm watching this going, I'm clearly not the intended target audience in some of the things that he's saying. So then I had to investigate what in the world they're talking about. 
But as I was talking with people through the midst of this, and there are some friends that are asking me, hey, do you believe in systemic racism or or uh, white patriarchal oppression and all this other kind of thing, these different terms that got thrown around? And I said, yes, I absolutely believe that there's racism in the church, not not the way that these terms are being redefined or how systemic racism is getting applied to everybody. There, there's definitely racism that's going on. There are people that discriminate against others for all kinds of reasons. Mm-hmm. Skin color is one of the most ridiculous, but nonetheless, there are still people that will uh, have prejudice toward others because of the color of their skin or their nationality or their background or whatever else. When you see that, confront it. Yeah. Where you mm-hmm. see it happening, say something about that. Right. There, there I would agree with Chandler on that point. But what I don't agree with is just assuming that mm-hmm. everybody is inherently racist because of their skin color. Yes. That's racist. If you're looking at me and thinking of me as racist because I'm a white guy, you're the racist one because you've already ascribed a sin to me that I'm not actually guilty of just because you saw the color of my skin. And so where we see sin happening mm-hmm. You know, going back to all these other matters that we've talked about as godly men, where you see sin taking place, confront that sin, call it out, call that person to repentance, defend the the rights of those who are being oppressed. We should stand up as godly men and defend those uh, who are poor and needy. That's even going back to Proverbs 31, incidentally, 9 and 10. And so where we where we see that taking place, we should say something, but we should absolutely not go along with these definitions that the culture is trying to impose upon everybody, saying that if you're white, you're racist, uh, or if you're white, you're privileged, and these persons that are these nationalities or these colors, they're they're automatically oppressed. I'm not going to look down on my that, that would be asking me to look down mm-hmm. on my brother in the Lord and thinking that he's somehow less privileged just because of of the. Uh, of the shape of his eyes, Eki, you know, <laughs> uh, that, that I'm now supposed to have certain assumptions of him because of his appearance. That is godless. That is not what scripture says. Uh, but instead, the instruction in James chapter two is that we show partiality to no one. Yeah. yeah. And when we talk about racism, that's really what we're talking about, right? The sin of partiality. Yeah. Yeah. That's when we ultimately bring it back to biblical terms. It's uh, pride, partiality, and hate, some combination of those three. And those things are sin. And when you look at the, uh, ironically, uh, James Cone is starting to become a bigger influence more and more. James Cone was the father of black liberation theology. Uh, He's much adored by those people that were speaking at MLK 50. Mm -hmm. And uh, he ended up passing away like within that year of that conference. Uh, But James Cone, just look at some of his quotes and then he'll tell you, um, he's he's one of the guys that kind of redefined racism to being about the exercise of power and 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 kind of the ideas that have given uh, given birth to a lot of the beliefs that we have today. But he ended up saying that it's impossible for a black man to be racist. Okay, just process that for a moment. Right. He said it's impossible mm-hmm. for a black man to be racist because black men lack power. And he said it is true that black men hate white men, but they can't be racist. And I remember reading that, going, "Well, there's the sin right there." You just said it in black and white. Mm -hmm. So anyone who is even just a little bit discerning about what the scriptures say should be able to look at that statement from James Cone and saying, how is it that you can ignore the clear sin that you're describing and then focus on something that's not even biblical? Yeah. So at the end of the day, you're right. Um, This is about partiality. It's about hatred. It's about pride. And we call all those things out as sin. It doesn't matter how they redefine it today. But by the way, the way they are redefining it turns into a false gospel. 
um, because now there's a different gospel. There's a different uh, rules for atonement. There's different rules with regards to sin. The depravity of man no longer applies equally across all different races. They're not going to come straight out and say this, but this is the clear implication of a lot of what they're teaching. Right. Here's what's very interesting. Where you know, Gabe, you made a good comment, which we all agree on. If you see genuine racism, step up and call it out. But here's what's very interesting about that: is now there are many men in the church, and because they are um, teaching from critical race theory, they are actually teaching racism. Right. And and so what what I see is, especially if you're a white guy like me. Uh, I, I mean, I'm whiter than white. It, it, me, this, I walk out in five minutes in the sun. I'm I look like a tomato, but um, b- but I see a lot of guys like me who are afraid to step up and say it, James Cone's theology is absolutely racist. Um, we shouldn't have that in our church. It's absolutely evil. By the way, if the theology you're learning is uh, prefaced in the title by a skin color, just know it's absolutely trash and wrong. Right. right? Uh, the fact that it's known as black liberation theology, it's defined by you know a skin color ought to be a big clue. And if you're not sure about, just replace black with white and see how you feel about it. What if we taught white liberation theology? Um, you wouldn't be comfortable with that, right? And nor should we. Uh, but these guys, and if I could think of several of their names, I would just rattle them off right now on the podcast, but I, my, my mind hasn't gotten there yet. Um, <laughs> but for guys who are uh, promoting critical race theory and you know, Matt Chandler, for instance, absolutely racist. He, he, has, he has brought racism into the church. He should be removed. He's unfit for the pulpit. Um, it, it, we, we don't tolerate it uh, in, in one direction and then tolerate it in you know, in, in the other direction. Right. So if a white if a white guy stands up and says, you know, if you're black, you're racist, we would all cry, remove that guy. Absolutely unacceptable. And we'd all agree with that. But now if a black guy stands up and says you're all racist because of your skin color, men are afraid to say anything. Absolutely not. We're meant to guard the church. We're meant to guard our families. Um, we can't be afraid because it's a big push in the culture. Yes, you're going to get called, you know, you're going to get called racist. If I say Jamar Tisby is racist and is, needs to repent from that, and I believe that wholeheartedly, I'm going to be labeled, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that doesn't mean what I'm saying is any less true. And, and we've got to deal with those things. And I think they're going to grow. At some stage, it's got to collapse because the, the doctrine it will just eat itself up. But we may be some time from that. But if we don't guard the church from those things, and I just thought of a few names, and actually, I'm not going to say them because I don't want to give them any airspace. <laughs> right. But I can but, think of a few, too. But I'm sitting here going, and do we really? Want, I mean, we're, we're yeah, coming up yeah. on the end. Let's not go down that trail. So, yeah. yeah. Um, but we've got to just call these guys out because we love the truth. It, and, and we can't worry about yeah. our skin color. And what will get called it, it? Look, I spent most of my life working in Africa. I grew up in the ghetto. I, my first few years in school up until high school, I was the only white guy in my class. I saw tons of racism, uh, people that hated me just because of my skin color. Go to Africa, where everyone is as black as the night in some countries. And guess <laughs> what? They, they still hate each other for the same reasons. And instead of yeah. skin color, it's what tribe they belong to. Right. right. So you can't even export uh, black liberation theology into all the rest of the world because it doesn't work. And if your theology can't be exported, it's because it's bad theology. Um, but that's just one of the areas I think that uh, especially, you know, men who aren't, you know, who have lighter complexions um, are afraid to talk about because they don't want to be labeled as racist. 
but we've got to love our families and love our churches far more than we're worried about uh, what we're called. Uh, you know, I, I'm not a racist at all, um, but I can't let critical race theory come into my church and affect the families that I'm giving care over because I'm afraid to call it what it is. And that's a great irony. It is the thing it accuses everyone else of, right? Right. Yeah, I, I actually, uh, I'm privileged uh, hey, there's White a word I'm, I'm not supposed to say, but yeah, I'm privileged in that uh, in, in that I've been uh, called to this ministry and I get to preach the gospel all the time. So you want to right. accuse me of privilege? Absolutely. I've got it uh, because I am privileged to have had my sins forgiven yeah. and be part of the family of God and be a follower of Jesus Christ. And that is absolutely something I'm not ashamed of. I am not going to apologize for who I am or what my skin color is because God made me this way. And so you're not bullying me into being silent or making me bow a knee and say that I owe something to somebody else when I've not committed the sin that you've accused me of. Uh, I've not committed that against anybody. You know, as we as we kind of wrap this up, we're kind of thinking our thoughts through and bringing this to a close. Uh, I had already mentioned Second Timothy 2 earlier about the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. It's also brought to mind 1 Peter 3.15, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Or another translation says, in your heart, set apart Christ as holy. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, but do this with gentleness and with fear. This is something that uh, a couple of other things that we haven't talked about as, as biblical men but, you know, I'm, I'm sure we can make a whole other pod, uh, podcast episode on all of this. But you have the instruction in Proverbs 1-7 to fear God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. A godly biblical man is going to fear God. And also, as we have this instruction to give an account for the hope that is, that is within you and doing this with gentleness and respect, when we're talking with other people, our language needs to be in such a way that is honoring to God. So something that that, you know, Nathaniel, you've probably even seen this before too, but like, like men don't need to have any rain over their tongues. They need to, they need to, to speak in a certain way that is bold and brash and will even rattle a few cages and things like that. And so you're, you're seeing even some biblical men even, or, you know, they'll, they'll profess to be biblical men, preachers that are using real foul language in the stuff that they're saying yeah. uh, and thinking that that's being a man of God. That's not the way that we've been called to behave. In fact, Proverbs says that God hates perverse speech, mm -hmm. and it's in Ephesians yeah. 4.29 where, it, where we are told to uh, give grace to those who hear, building one another up with our words instead of tearing each other down. So we're, we're responding to these matters, just as we've talked about in this podcast, with words that are honoring to God. If we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, then even our tongues are in submission unto the Lord. And we need to be sure that the words that we say are honoring of Christ and setting examples for others as to how they should be speaking and responding to those things as well. Yeah. Amen. Eki, you have any yeah, last that, words? Yeah, those are, I, I have trouble adding to that. I think that's extremely well stated. And I love what uh, Gabe just said that, yeah, we are privileged. Anyone who has received grace from God is privileged. Um, so we we recognize that. We don't apologize for that. That's God's grace in, in his choosing and his election. And of course, I'm getting close to wandering into another category here of discussion. <laughs> um, but yeah, we are privileged. And, and I can just say this as, as the Asian guy in the group, 
Um, I am often outspoken on this because I want to embolden others to be able to stand up for the truth, regardless of what their skin color is. Mm -hmm. So I speak up as an Asian and I don't speak with any more truth because I'm an Asian. The measurement of whether what I say is true or not is going to come down to the word of God, period. Yeah. 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 Amen. Well, uh, it, lastly, I, I want to do two things. I, I want to read from Ephesians chapter four, uh, just real quickly. You know, we're talking about racism and, you know, as we're thinking about dealing with any theological issue that would come into the church that would create division, because that's exactly what critical race theory does, right? It creates division. It divides black and white. Uh, it divides one group of people from another and attributes sin that's not there uh, to them, which, you know, you've already spoke to. But listen to this. Paul says, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And if the theology coming into the church is not doing that, then it's bad theology. Yeah. And and as men, we have to stand up and draw the line in the sand and, and guard against that. The last words, we've been talking about all of this stuff, and, and ultimately, it comes down to at the end, a biblical man should be a champion of the gospel, a herald of the gospel, right? So, as we close up, um, Gabe, why don't you just walk us through uh, what is the gospel? What is it that we should be champion? Well, the gospel is very simply in a word, it's Christ. The gospel is Jesus Christ. It is the good news of what God has done through his son, uh, as it says in Colossians chapter one, reconciling all things to himself through the person and work of Jesus Christ, making peace by the blood of his cross. That's the message of the gospel. By putting faith in Jesus Christ, we are forgiven our sins. We are cleansed of all unrighteousness. We are clothed in his righteousness. As Jesus said to the churches in Revelation, I will give you white garments and clothe you and make you new. Uh, as we read in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he became sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And that means not only that our sins are forgiven by faith in Christ and that we have unity with God, we're reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. It also means, therefore, that we're going to walk in the righteousness of Christ. So we're going to demonstrate with our lives that we have been changed. We have been transformed, no longer going after the pattern of this world, but being transformed by the renewing of our minds, as said in uh, in Romans 12, 2, and also back to Colossians, that we're, we're taking off the old and putting on the new, which is being renewed after the image of our creator. So we're, we're walking in the goodness of God that he has given to us in Christ, his son, and we show that we are Christ when we live as Christ. First uh, John 2, 5 and 6, those who are followers of Jesus ought to walk in the ways in which he walked. And so may that be the, uh, the example of our lives that we've been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is just very simply good news. It's the declaration that Christ has died on the cross for our sins. He has risen again from the grave. He's ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of God. He is coming back again to judge the living and the dead. But all who believe in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Well, guys, thank you for joining us. You've heard the truth. And so until next time, let the truth be known. 
The Truth Be Known podcast is a theologically driven, gospel-centered program serving the body of Christ by bringing biblical truth to bear on issues facing the church today. Subscribe to the Truth Be Known podcast by using the podcast app on your Apple or Android device or listen online at strivingforeternity.org in the podcast section.